0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 54, March 28th to March 3rd, 1862. Last week, we continued Burnside's campaign into North Carolina with the siege and ultimate capitulation of Fort Macon. We have what is dubbed as Jackson's only defeat of the war in the Battle of Kernstown as well. Although a defeat, we can see it as a tactical victory because it will have large effects on the amount of troops being committed to the peninsula for George B. McClellan. This week, we need to fight another battle with bigger implications. We can put a pin in the Texan invasion of New Mexico after this week with the Battle of Glorieta Pass. Before we get into the version of the Gettysburg of the West, I think we need to rewind and set the table. When last in New Mexico, we had the Union setback at the Battle of Valverde. Texas troops were able to put their enemy to rout and force a withdrawal into Fort Craig. Fort Craig, of course, was the objective for the rebels, for resupply purposes. Edward Canby, who commanded the northern troops in the area, was content with sitting in Fort Craig and perhaps forcing Sibley into a siege. The problem with that, as we have already mentioned, is that the supply issues for Sibley would make this a less than ideal situation. Additionally, Canby has reinforcements that would potentially be on the way. Volunteers were forming up and coming down from Colorado. There was a column from California that would be moving on Confederate-occupied Tucson. Most concerning for the rebels was the marching of around 5,000 men from Kansas. If all of these forces were to combine, it would be overwhelming numerical superiority. Sibley would gamble and call for a surrender of Fort Craig, which Canby would refuse. It should be pointed out also that the Texas general declined a truce to collect wounded after the battle. His brigade would move on and attempt to win over the populace of the New Mexico Territory. Once New Mexico provided its sons, food, clothing, and captured Union supplies, the Texas brigade could move on to Colorado. There were already some Confederate sympathies there. Colorado secured would see the expanding of the rebel empire eventually all the way to California. Once this happened, the foreign powers would recognize them as legitimate. Remember that this is all part of the plan. Just as a quick aside, I have seen it argued that this plan as a whole was not feasible. It cost the Confederate government virtually nothing, though. Foreign recognition did stem from the American Revolution, I would also like to add. Remember, it would not have gone over very well if France and Spain decided not to help the Patriot cause. In a war that was likened to a second battle for independence, stealing the playbook from less than 100 years ago seems like a good call. But Sibley obviously did not have enough resources to accomplish this task. And even if Jefferson Davis had decided that he would put more resources into Sibley's campaign, it's also very unlikely that he would have succeeded. Speaking on the brewing revolution in New Mexico, things go fairly well for Sibley. Albuquerque and Santa Fe are both occupied without a real defense. Canby, though, would not be idle in sitting at Fort Craig. He sent troops to skirmish with the Confederates as they advanced, harassing their approaches. Crucially, he also sent forward his quartermaster to supervise the removal and withdrawal of supplies. Despite missing out on Fort Craig and having the retreating Union forces destroy their supply depots before the Texans could capture them, there were some captured stores enough for the Texans to last an additional 40-some days. Rather than winning hearts and minds, this led to foraging by the Texas troops. This foraging probably did not go over well for the fears and misgivings over the Texans that the inhabitants already had. Sibley, who will continue his streak as an ineffectual commander, would spread out his forces in an effort to assist in these foraging attempts. This lack of concentration would be good for supply, but not good for logistics, and not good for defense in case the Union forces were to advance suddenly. But if Canby was still to the south at Fort Craig, where would this attack come from? Fort Union was the next objective. This fort sat on the Santa Fe Trail to the east of the namesake city. Not only would it be a gateway to moving north into Colorado, but much like Fort Craig, it would have valuable supplies for the Confederate forces. Coming down to this location would be the 1st Colorado Infantry commanded by John P. Slaw. Slaw was an abolitionist who had participated in Bleeding Kansas before relocating to Colorado. Governor William Gilpin had appointed Slaw to be the commander of this regiment due to his being a fellow Republican Party member. Slot was not well-liked, though. Especially, he would not get along with a company made up of primarily German immigrants, which will affect our story here shortly. After the war, Slot would become a chief justice in New Mexico, but would be shot over a dispute with someone attempting to oust him from power. Also, in the first Colorado would be a preacher turned soldier, John Shivington. He's going to win fame after this battle, but his fortunes would shift drastically later on in the territory, turning him from hero to villain overnight. Slaw would arrive at Fort Union in late 1862 and take command there, despite there being a U.S. regular colonel already present. Gabriel Paul had been a West Pointer, and probably the better of the two to lead their operations. Slaw and Paul would argue over who should be the commander of this force, and then what to do. Paul would actually appeal to Washington for promotion, but Slaw's commission date as colonel did come first, so he technically would outrank Paul even with his woeful lack of experience. This inexperience would be demonstrated by his plan. It was argued that they should combine with Canby out of Fort Craig and then be prepared to move on Sibley. They could circumvent the Texas Brigade and accomplish this goal. Slaw wanted to take the fight to the enemy immediately and without doing any sort of reconnaissance. He was there to fight, and fight he would do much to the pain of Paul. Now, this would actually probably play more into the hands of the Confederates. If Sibley had his forces combined, then he could defeat Slaw and his Colorado contingent and maybe gain some sort of popular opinion in the region. He would also then be able to face the rest of the reinforcements piecemeal uh, as opposed to having them combined where he's definitely going to lose that fight. For the battlefield that will become known as Glorieta or Glorieta Pass, geography will play a large role. Apache Canyon would be full of heavy pines and brush, making visibility poor. Likewise, as you could imagine, the fact that it is a canyon would make maneuver by troops difficult. Three way stations along the Santa Fe Trail will play a factor in our story. From the west to east, we have Johnson's Ranch, Pigeon Ranch, and Kozowalski's Ranch. I will hopefully place a map on the website that should make things more clear. Sibley, as you can remember, was not going to be the direct battlefield commander in either Valverde or Glorieta. Colonel Tom Green had been effectively the commander earlier in the year, In late March of 1862, the area around Apache Canyon was under the control of William Reed Scurry. Scurry was a tough customer, known as Dirty Shirt. He had served as a member of Congress of the Republic of Texas before seeing action during the Mexican-American War. Scurry will continue to command Confederate troops in the West, eventually falling later in the conflict. It should be noted that Sibley's second-in-command was James Riley, and he was not present during the battle. Riley had been dispatched to Mexico in an effort to garner support from the governors of the northern states of that country. It was a good try, but ultimately it would be unsuccessful. Sibley's plan is now to move on Fort Union. A column under Pyron would take the Santa Fe Trail. Tom Green, the commander at Valverde, would lead a column further south. Colonel Scurry would place his men in a position where he could potentially support either column. On March twenty-six, Slaw would move his men under Fighting Parson Shivington through the pass. Reports were that there were not as many men guarding Santa Fe, so the roughly 200 cavalry and 150 infantry under Shivington would be sufficient. It should be noted that Paul had received orders not to move out, which Slaw disregarded. Slaw, for his part, would inform Paul the orders were for Paul, not for him. Additionally, there were orders not to move out until reinforcements arrived which the Colorado Regiment was. Canby would send more orders to Slaw, which were most likely intended as a slap on the hand of the inexperienced general, saying he should use mounted troops to harass the enemy, and that a sufficient garrison should be left at Fort Union. Previously, Canby had ordered new construction with better defensive works at the fort, so its importance and safety were still on his mind. It could not be said the same of the Colorado troops, who were a rowdy bunch, and apparently had already raided the stores at Fort Union and spent an evening drinking, fighting, and carousing. Although they were operating in the same area, both sides were unaware of the presence of the other. In fact, on the night of the 25th, patrols from north and south had passed each other in the darkness. Shivington's men would be the first to fall on the Confederate pickets, capturing them all. Confederates actually thought that the mounted men approaching were their own cavalry. Pyron's men were thus unaware that the Union forces were on the scene. Union Regular Cavalry would begin to form up along with the Colorado Infantry. Both sides would make contact and raise the alarm. Pyron had with him companies of the 2nd Texas combined with additional companies of the 5th Texas under Major Shropshire. Artillery was present in the form of two pieces, but amazingly, the artillery officers were not present with their guns. When beset by the oncoming Federals, Pyron would order just three privates to fire on the oncoming troops. Their firing was not effective, and the Texans would soon be forced to withdraw. At this point, it would have been prudent for the cavalry to charge and potentially seize the guns, but they did not take the opportunity. Shivington ordered Captain Downing of the Colorado Regiment to flank the Confederate line, which they did to great success, the rebels forced to continue their retreat. Major Shropshire himself attempted to save his former company of encirclement and capture. As the Texans retired, the opportunity seemed right for an actual attempt on the two six-pounders. Regular cavalry would gallop toward the weapons, but a variety of factors would go against the Yankees. For one, the terrain was not conducive to a cavalry charge. Kicked up dust would also make vision impaired, and fire from their enemy drew the heroic action to a halt. I have here an account of the fighting and of the cavalry charge. This would be from a member of the Colorado Infantry. The Texans were fleeing like whipped curs from the wrath to come. Why they so suddenly deserted so fine a position was to us a mystery, but soon everything was explained. The much vaunted courage of the Texans had been tried and found wanting. Shivington, seeing the enemy upon each side of the canyon, approaching nearer each other, and that the Texans were rapidly decreasing beneath their falling fire, immediately called out to the officers of the mounted companies, who will lead the charge. For the moment, there was no response. The volunteers, with due respect to the regular officers, for an instant, yielded to them the honor, but hearing no response, the gallant Captain Cook, captain of Company F, one of our own Colorado boys, answered he would lead the charge. In an instant, his clear, trumpet-toned voice rang along the canyon. Forward to the run, march. Like the wind, he flew down the canyon into the very jaws of death, while the artillery belched forth their missiles of death, and every moment seemed surely must be his last. But the roar of the artillery ceases. The rebel ranks waver, break, and run with them, the artillery. It was during this charge that Captain Cook would actually be wounded uh, during the action. I have also a very colorful detail of the battle on kind of how much of a running fight it was between the two sides. And this is from that same officer from the Colorado Regiment. A few minutes passed when, to the astonishment of the Texans, a shower of lead with an incredible accuracy of aim came pouring down upon them, till, in their own expressive language, the heavens seemed to have opened, and the lead come storming down. Thinking discretion, the better part of valor, the chivalrous sons of the sunny south started to the direction of the land of Dixie, with a fleetness really surprising. Yelling at every step, The Yankees are coming, till reaching about four companies who had not been in the fight were again rallied by their officers, who told them, we were nothing but Yankees, and every advantage was in their favor. Again, the Major tickled their fancies by firing at them from the canyon, but alas, for the poor deluded creatures, the first regiment was composed of Rocky Mountain gold hunters, who climbed to the mountain sides with their expertness of the goat. Soon the spell was broken, as their fallen comrades told a tale more terrible than the Texans had ever heard before, and again their serried ranks were broken, and in flight they placed their trust. Soon the Texans met another reinforcement, and again the third time, and the last time that day, they made a stand, which in appearance seemed to say, Yankees, feast your eyes upon the Spartan band, for here we will stand, and proudly, with a victory, or never again see Dixie's land. There they stood, and in defiance cried, Yankees now, come on, when suddenly the mountainsides gave an answer to their call, which seemed to say, Tejanos, you can't bluff the Yankees, so don't you stay at all, when Moral suasion, Southern Boasting, and Secesh gas seemed to have lost all its varied powers. So that's a pretty colorful account of the fighting on that first day of Glorieta. Byron was able to make a new line at Johnson's Ranch, while Shivington would regroup with his commanding officer at the opposite end of the pass. Casualties for the skirmish at Apache Canyon were light. The Confederates lost 3 killed and 1 wounded, while the Union lost 5 killed and 14 wounded. Of the killed was an officer who had attempted to break a captured shotgun, but accidentally discharged the weapon in the process. The important part on the day was that 71 men of Pyron were captured, almost a full fourth of his command. March 27th would be a day spent gathering forces on both sides. Scurry would move his men quickly to Johnson's Ranch, ready to support Pyron. His men were force-marched, arriving at 3 a.m. Shivington had decided not to press the attack. Their enemy had a good defensive position and also had two six-pounders while he had no artillery. We left to the action on the 28th to decide who would control the pass and ultimately decide the fate of the invasion of New Mexico. Neither side had a good guess on the strategy or strength of the enemy. For this reason, Slaw decided that the best course of action would be to divide his men and send Shivington on a flanking maneuver. Scurry had originally decided to set up defensively, but when nothing happened on the 27th, he decided to move his command to go find the enemy. Around 11 a.m. on the 28th, the two sides finally made contact with one another, each bringing artillery to the field. With the fire being exchanged, Slaw would move Captain Downing's men once again in a flanking motion. The fire from the Confederate artillery would force the Federals to move back. The Colorado Company, made mostly of Germans, had found a ravine in an attempt to flank the pieces, but elements of two Texas regiments would descend upon them, forcing some 50% casualties. Some of this fighting was brutal hand-to-hand. After the battle, Downing had a very poor opinion of the commanding officer Slaw, calling him a coward. It was actually around this time that perhaps he had taken friendly fire. If you recall, he was not well liked. Already having bumped heads with the Germans and having not sent any units for support may have led to someone clad in blue attempting to even the score. Slot redeployed his men around a better defensive position at Pigeon Ranch. Artillery to the high ground on his left flank, supported by infantry, would prove a problem. Scurry had not followed immediately but he sent some units out wide to make contact with the enemy. The Colorado troops had picked their concealment well. Lieutenant Colonel Tappan, who had taken command of the Colorado infantry, was able to inform Slaw of the Confederate movements from the left flank. Scurry sent forces to press the Federal right under Pyron, as well as men to the left through the thick trees. Visibility being poor, this fighting was sporadic, with the Confederate major commanding being killed. With an additional officer killed and one captured, Scurry would order a withdrawal from this move on the left. In one of the more colorful incidents of the battle, a Confederate soldier, who did not hear the call to retreat, found himself next to Lieutenant Colonel Tappan. Alfred Petacollas, the Confederate, had taken a Union captain's overcoat to keep worn. Tappan had told him he should be careful as the rebels were sniping at them. Thinking quickly, the Confederate responded that he would go and take a shot at them, walking away and escaping back to his own lines. With the right and the left still holding for the Northern forces, Scurry would focus on the center of the Federal line around Pigeon Ranch. His advances were repulsed by fire from the Colorado forces and the artillery. If there was to be headway made, it would have to be done on the Union right. Pyron was able to work his men around the Yankees and put enough pressure to force them from their positions. Known as Sharpshooter's Ridge, the high ground would allow for the Rebels to pour fire into the Union line. I have an account from Scurry describing the action. Majors Ruggett and Pyron opened a galling fire upon their left from the Rock on the mountainside, in the center charging down the road. The foe were driven from the ranch to the ledge of rocks before alluded to, where they made their final and most desperate stand. At this point, three batteries of eight guns opened a furious fire of grape, canister, and shell upon our advancing troops. Our brave soldiers, heedless of the storm, pressed on, determined if possible to take their battery. A heavy body of infantry, twice our number, interposed to save their guns. Here the conflict was terrible, our men and officers alike, inspired with the unalterable determination to overcome every obstacle to the attainment of their object, dashed among them. The right and center had united on the left, the intrepid Rigaud and the cool, calm, courageous Pyron had pushed forward among the rocks, until the muzzles of the guns of the opposing forces passed each other, inch by inch was the ground disputed. Captain Downing would also describe the final Confederate charge. It was the last effort the Texans intended to make. To win, it would be in effect to win the batteries and the battle as from this point, guarded by rocks, trees, and brush. The artillery horses could soon be disposed of, while our forces in the canyon, unprotected by any cover, could not hold the battery against the accurate aim of twelve or 1,500 Texans. Up the ravine, regardless of the bullet or the bayonet, Of the little band, came the desperate herd. Human nature could not much longer stand against their overwhelming numbers. Suddenly a cheer was heard and Captain Wilder of Company G, with some 25 of his brave boys, dashed along the mountainside to their assistance. As Captain Wilder proved to be a brave and valuable assistant, the struggle now became a fierce one. Guns were discharged within two inches of each other's heads, scattering their brains upon their comrades around them, Soon the order came to move the battery to the rear, as the ammunition was nearly gone, and it would soon be dark. The battery being some 300 yards in the rear, the little band under myself and Wildler and Lieutenant Chambers being almost surrounded and so depleted to hold their position 20 minutes longer would be impossible. I determined to save, if possible, all. So you have an account of Captain Downing being able to save the batteries that were around Pigeon Ranch. Slaw withdrew, making sure to secure his baggage train, making a brief stand before continuing back toward Koswalski's ranch. While Scurry had the field, he was unaware of the disaster that had befallen the Confederate Army. Earlier in the day, he had left his supplies at Johnson's Ranch, with a small number of men, mostly sick and wounded as guards. Shivington would be led by New Mexican Volunteer Colonel Manuel Chavez around Apache Canyon and to a spot on the Glorieta Mesa overlooking Johnson's Ranch and the virtually undefended rebel train. Over 500 men would descend from the mesa, capturing their enemy as they were beginning to burn the supplies. Pack animals were run off or killed to further hinder the rebels. Damage done. Shivington's troops were guided back to friendly lines by a Polish former priest. Casualties for the battle were over 200 killed, wounded, and captured for the Confederates, and 150 for the Union troops. With the supplies of the army destroyed, the Texas dream of potentially capturing the gold fields of Colorado and California were over. Sibley would begin to withdraw his forces back to Texas in a rough march that avoided the pursuing forces under Canby. The Federal Commander was able to combine with Slaw's men. Slaw actually resigned shortly afterward, due to accusations of cowardice. He would move to the Eastern Theater for the rest of the war. With many hardships on the march, Sibley, already disliked, would be hated before the end. Charlton's California Column would arrive and drive the Arizona Rangers out of Tucson in the meantime. Confederate Arizona would be no more. So, we can draw a close to the New Mexico Campaign. We fought the Battle of Glorieta Pass, which sealed the fate of said actions in the Far West. Sibley's Brigade will be dispersed, joining the other theaters of the war most notably the Trans-Mississippi. Sibley, for his part, would be done. While this week was a busy week, next week we are going to have a real beast of an episode. Because next week, good listeners, we fight the Battle of Shiloh. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcomed. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.